You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So let's get reading this long text, the story within the story within the story, or the sandwich, okay, rather than the intercalation. Now, When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, he went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If anything, anyone has anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Wow. Huge text, right? Lots of things going on in it. We're going to focus on two different points that we're going to kind of hopefully string these together. And that is the fig tree and the king. Okay, the fig tree first. You know, you might go like, wait a minute, what does Jesus have against fig trees? <laughs> I mean, the text says there are, it wasn't the season for figs. He comes up to it, he seems hungry, he gets ticked off, he can't find anything, he curses it, boom, it's gone, right? Um, it's not really about the fig tree. Like I said, this intercalation, this kind of three-layered sandwich, the tree, of a fig tree has often represented the nation of Israel um, in metaphor from the prophetic times on. Jesus doesn't actually have it out for the plant kingdom, nor does he have it out for the ficus genus of trees, okay? (laughs) 
And there's something else that makes a lot more sense about this. Um, I didn't know this, but I've read that this kind of ficus, this fig tree, actually has two types of fruit. Yes. When the leaves come out, there are these little buds that develop right at that point in time, and they're really kind of good to eat. And a healthy tree, when the leaves come out, would have thousands and thousands of these little nubs all over its branches, showing a precursor to what will become figs later on. It's a different that way. And so when Jesus finds that there are no nubs on that tree, it's a sign that this tree, though in full leaf and looking good, is diseased at its core. It's dying from the inside out. It looks good. And so his cursing of this tree is only really speeding the decay that was already there. And like I said, this is not the story about a fig tree and botany. It's a story about the temple and the people of God at that time. Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple right? He is basically saying, this place looks great. Everything looks like it's in order. It's busy. It's active. And yet, it's diseased at its core. It's dying. All he finds is an empty, dead religion going on at the temple at the time. He then cleanses the temple which is a precursor to what will happen just a few decades later in 70 AD, this temple is destroyed. Did you know that? The last time there's been a temple on that spot in Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, it's not the first time this has happened. In fact, Jesus isn't the first prophetic figure to speak about fig trees, to speak about the temple. In fact, he quotes in when he says, is not my house, this to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a robber's den, is a quote from the prophet Jeremiah, who also prophetically proclaimed how diseased and dead and destructive that temple whole system was in his day and age, in, you know, 700 600 years before Jesus. And Jeremiah harshly called out its hypocrisy as well. And boy, he paid a price for it. He was thrown into a well. He was treated poorly in this way and that way. Every prophet that Israel was sent was treated like trash to be tossed out. But Jeremiah also quotes in Jeremiah chapter 8 uh, some fascinating verses that fit into this story. He says about the temple and about the leadership of his day, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not all, at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Get this. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. The temple was fruitless, useless, like a fig tree without fruit, both in Jeremiah's day and in Jesus' day. And yet, the temple was a busy place, 
Um, there's a historian named Josephus who wrote uh, a long history. And what's fascinating in it is he talks about the Jewish wars that they had had and, and all that had happened in the time of Jesus as well. And Josephus mentions that just on a given Passover, any given Passover, which was this week that Jesus enters Jerusalem, that 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in one week for Passover. Talk about a busy place. Any church today would be thrilled with statistics like that. 255,000 people. Look at what they did here on this spot. But the whole business and busyness of the temple is exactly what Jesus is upset with. I don't know if you realize this as well. You know, when he turns over the money changers and all that stuff, when I was a child, I thought, oh, well, I guess that's been going on a long... It was a new innovation that Annas and Caiaphas, the priesthood at the time, had just started at about 30 AD, just a couple of years before Jesus enters the temple. They had thought, well, you know, this Gentile court, you know, this whole big area, it's kind of empty a lot of times. Why don't we fill it up? I mean, let's make it a one-stop shop. You know, they used to... Um, over at the Mount of Olives and other places, buy, you know, their lambs and bring them in. Let's make it prohibit that and center and focus the temple on making some money for the priesthood. Yes, Lee Rittmer, he's an archaeologist and an architect himself, and he reports that the ancient historian Josephus again calls Annas the high priest. I think I have a slide on this. Hello. <laughs> okay. A great hoarder up of money. The sons of Annas had bazaar set up in the court of the Gentiles for the purpose of money changing and the purpose of sacrificial animals. It was the combination of their greed, the fact that they brought in foreign coins, and that they carried out these activities in the sacred area that aroused the zeal of Jesus. I mean, consider it now. The court of the Gentiles is the only place anyone from outside of Israel and the people of God could come in to worship the true God. And when they entered it, all they got was a chaotic circus. There was no way to worship God. There was no way to get close to God. Everything was a mess. The absolute opposite message was being sent. It was just a money-making machine. No wonder Jesus cries out in Mark eleven seventeen. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Did you realize that the temple was just a racket in Jesus' day? A shill game, a sham, a show? But this isn't just a story of back then and we don't go, that's just so terrible how they've turned religion into money making. You see where this is going? Am I stepping in it? I'm going to. Christianity in the United States today, what would Jesus make of it? Hmm? It's all about market share. It's all about economics. It's all about attracting a crowd and entertaining them and budgets and numbers. Have you noticed? And Christian leaders, it's all about power. It's all about political influence. It's all about book deals, which comes back to it's all about money. Has anything changed? 
Is it about changed lives? Is it really about people coming closer to God? Is it about following Jesus? Or it's just about being a great big organization that looks great and, you know, wonderful on the outside, but has the lack of fruit on the inside? Is anyone producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, humility and self-control? That's really the character of Jesus Christ among his people. So often today I have heard people are turned off by the church because of Christians themselves who look like they're not anything like Jesus. And especially when I have seen personally, and you might not want me to go there, but I've seen Christians get involved in power and politics. We turn into something other than Jesus when we do that. We don't look like anything like Jesus. We look like judgmental, pharisaical, power-hungry people. God never intended this. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, and he uses the metaphor of trees and fruitfulness, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Ouch. You can do whatever you want with a diseased tree like we have in our text today. You can fertilize it. You can prune it. You can baby it. You can nurture it. It ain't going to produce a fig. It can't. It's diseased. It's dying. The only thing you can do is to cut it down. And the only thing that you can do to human beings, in a sense. That's what Jesus is after. He's not really talking about trees. He's using that as a metaphor. Is the fruitless, old, selfish, sinful nature that I have, that needs to be cut down and thrown away. Don't rehab it. Don't try to enhance it. Don't empower it. Don't expect the problem with human nature is just that we need more power. We don't need more power. I need to be different than who I am. I need a whole new nature. I need a whole new, I need a makeover on the inside and out. So we look at the cursing of the fig tree. It's not cruel at all. The tree was dying already. Jesus just sped it up. And cleansing the temple, that was not mean either. It was displaying what the temple really had become and that there was no way to really reform it and it needed to go away. In fact, when Jesus says, and this is the funny thing is, uh, I know in this text it says, you know, um, the, Peter says, hey, look at this fig tree. And then Jesus starts going on about throwing mountains into the sea and all this stuff. And you think it's all just a genetic. No, it's about the specifically, he says, remove this mountain. You look at that text. What mountain is that? The mount of the temple. Throw it away. There's something greater. Faith in me that's going to replace it all. So what do we have in replace of our religion and our rigmarole? 
And that's going to be Jesus being the king. The king the way he intended. And what's fascinating in this text now is how a genius he is at setting up what kind of a king he's going to be. You see, there were expectations. In fact, the crowd probably expected something totally different than Jesus was going to be. When he came into Jerusalem, they cried, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, Blessed is the son of David. And how David's reign was coming back. And if you read in the Old Testament what David's reign was like, do you know what it was like? He was a military ruler. He killed off his enemies. And he ended up actually even having uh, a civil war uh, as a result of a rebellion of one of his sons. And he, he had four sons that were killed off because of his own violence within his own household and his own avarice and desire for a, a woman named Bathsheba. All of those things were part of David. What kind of a king do you want, right? David was a warrior king. Is that what Jesus is going to do? Is that how he's going to do it? And by the way, Something you may not realize, something I didn't grow up understanding, is that just 200 years before this, there was a king kind of person, a king-priest combination named Simon Maccabeus. The Maccabeans were those who came in because they saw that Israel at that time was being ruled by the Persians. And when he defeated the Persian leaders who were ruling Israel at that time, Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem on a war horse. And guess what the crowds did? They cried out, Hosanna, and they waved palm branches in their hands. And he came in and rededicated the temple, reinstituted the priesthood. He himself was one of the priests and the king. And we call that... Hanukkah. Now, oh, yeah. I don't know if Israel was so happy with these Hasmonean, that's what they're called, kings, these Maccabean kings, because they may have kicked out the Seleucids, but they became tyrants themselves. In fact, uh, Simon Maccabeus and his uh, brothers, who were all in charge, killed off tens of thousands of the Jewish people themselves. In fact, one named Alexander Janaeus even crucified 800 Jews in one event. He crucified his own people to stay in power. Violence is justified so often, isn't it? You know, we're liberating Jerusalem. We're going to take over. We're going to kick out the nations. It's amazing how human nature always thinks this time it's going to be different. You know, freeing people by force, using military might, we celebrate it time and again, and we think this time it's going to be different because our side is doing it. Every time throughout history, we get disappointed when one more leader just becomes an authoritarian. It doesn't last, and the kingdom doesn't bring real peace. And I dare say, we've got some problems in our day and age that we better deal with as well. Because somehow we're thinking, this time it's going to be different when we Christians dominate. 
James Davison Hunter writes in one of his books, most Christians cannot imagine power in any other way than toward the, what finally leads to political domination. Thus, it's not surprising that in conformity to the spirit of the modern age, Christians conceive of power as political power. Christians, like most modern people, have politicized every aspect of public life and private life as well, from church-state issues, education, the media, entertainment, and the arts, and the environment to family values, sexuality, and parenting. In this, they mistakenly imagine that to pass a referendum, elect a candidate, pass a law, or change a policy is to change culture. Has it worked? I have a feeling we're just alike the, the crowds on Palm Sunday crying out for another king like David. We want a warrior king. We want someone to liberate, someone to save us from our enemies. And the enemies are those people over there because we're on the right side of history. For the Jews, it was the Romans. We could say for the Republicans, it's the Democrats. For the Democrats, it's the Republicans. For the left, it's the right. And for the right, it's the left. But Jesus came into Jerusalem, not for one part of humanity or one tribe or one group against another. He cried out, right? My house is to be a, a house of prayer for all nations. He came for everybody. And it says this, Mark eleven seven, as we've brought up, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. He de deliberately does something that is so jarring that no one expected. He doesn't ride into Jerusalem as a king like Simon Maccabeus on a war horse. He doesn't come on a tank or a Mercedes or a Hummer, but a Vespa, a moped, almost like a bicycle, you know? Because he's declaring something with how he comes in. He is declaring that he is the king of Zechariah that declares one who is humble, who rides on the colt the foal of a donkey to bring peace. Whereas the Maccabean kings cleaned the temple out from the nations, Jesus cleanses the temple for the nations. He does the opposite. I was also fascinated to uh, find uh, a discussion in the Talmud. The Talmud is commentary by different rabbis over the centuries on the prophetic texts of the Old Testament. And there was a discussion in the Talmud between rabbis about what, just who the Messiah is going to be because um, they seem to have some conflicting um, prophecies. For the prophet Daniel, he says he's going to be the son of man coming in clouds on, uh, with authority. But in Zechariah, he's going to come humble on a donkey. Which one is it? How did they fit together? And um, Rabbi Alexandri um, kind of summarizes this contradiction. He says this. I think this is fascinating. If Jewish people merit redemption, the Messiah will come in a miraculous manner with the clouds of heaven. If they do not merit redemption, the Messiah will come lowly and riding upon a donkey. Fascinating. Jesus enters Jerusalem not because Israel deserves it. They didn't merit it. 
He came in because they didn't. So all of these events that we've talked about, the cursing of the fig tree, uh, riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, the cleansing of the temple, the um, sandwich, the intercalation of all of these things together are basically telling us Jesus is going to be a Messiah for those who don't deserve it. You. Me. Like the fig tree without any fruit, we might look good, but that's about it. And you might go like, wait a minute, John. I've done good things. I give to charity. I've helped. I've been productive. I've, I've treated my neighbors nicely. Oh, great. I'm glad you do. But the fruit that Jesus is looking for, what he is expecting is the fruit, like I've said, of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, humility, and self-control. Are you telling me that love is all your motivation all the time? That you are truly in self-control? Your anger never gets a hold of you? Have you been in our traffic lately? (laughs) That you are truly humble? I'm none of these things. Like the temple as well. Our churches are filled with a lot of activity, but they are so amazingly market-driven and focused on looking attractive and having all sorts of consumer products to give to consumers that so little is done for discipleship. So much is based on programs, so little on relationships. So I dare say today, our temples need cleansing, and our fig trees need to die, and our expectations need to be dashed. I need to be saved from myself. Sometimes we have said, uh, we don't like to repeat this, but I am in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. It's another way of saying I am so self-centered and so focused on me, I think I'm always right and I'm never that righteous. I need to be saved from myself. I need a savior to come for somebody who's not worthy. I need Jesus to come as he did to Jerusalem that didn't deserve it. I need God's grace. And that's how we enter the kingdom. And that's the kind of king we have. Jesus mentioned in uh, the start of what he called the sermon, or we call the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think he titled it that necessarily. He was just preaching that day, teaching the crowds. He starts out that message with this phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, a better way to say poor in spirit is spiritual beggars, people who know that they are empty and devoid of any goodness in themselves, that don't look at themselves as better than anyone else, that can't say, my tribe is so much more righteous than you, or they're worse than we are, but just realize that I need to be saved from myself. And the truth is, this is who Jesus came for. He came into Jerusalem. He literally came for those who were not worthy. He literally dies for people who reject him. He absolutely comes for disciples who would forsake him. He loves them. He loves you. There's nothing you could do, nothing you have done to make yourself worthy of his love, and nothing 
to spurn His love or reduce His love for you. This week, we celebrate what, I, like I've said, is the week that changes all human destiny. It's changed yours. And Jesus comes into his kingdom on the throne of a cross. And he deliberately does that. And there we find Jesus on that cross on this Friday. He's the spiritual beggar. He's the one who empties himself, has nothing to himself, completely humbles himself, has no dignity, no honor, no friends, no advocates, no thanks, no praise, no glory, just a crown made of thorns of the curse itself. And that's the king that we have who loves us so he wants to reign in our hearts and lives, to give us that new life, to give us his spirit. And this is why still we celebrate Palm Sunday and we cry out Hosanna. And the word Hosanna means save us. And we realize we need to be saved from ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're no different than the crowds on that first Palm Sunday. We're no different. And our churches are no different than the temple filled with busyness and yet empty and devoid so often of what you want. We're no different than that fig tree that looked good but was diseased on the inside, Lord. We are fruitless. Forgive us, O Lord. <laughs> and Lord, give us that new life that only you can have. You know, you talked about that new life, Lord Jesus, as being born again, as being reborn by water, by spirit, by your Holy Spirit, Lord God. We thank you that you freely give that rebirth, that whoever believes in you does not perish but has eternal life, that we are, as Paul said, crucified with Christ so that it is no longer we who live, but Christ, you live in us. And everything we now live is by faith in you, Lord Jesus, because you died for us, you rose again for us, and you give us that new life. Help us, O oh Lord, now to respond to your goodness and grace in such a way that our lives do bear your fruit, just your life within us, your life through us to others. And Lord, we pray that our church is not as much as we can avoid <laughs> in our own fallenness and brokenness and sinfulness, um, we avoid becoming a marketplace, a place that actually pushes people away or gives the wrong message of who you are, Lord Jesus. May you reign here um, and keep working in us in such a way, Lord, that you alone are given all glory and honor and praise. Lord, what a savior you are. We're just amazed at it, Lord, that you would choose to live, to serve, to die in such a way. We celebrate that this week. And all we can do now in response is to give ourselves to you to offer our tithes and offerings to you for the sake of such a kingdom, to serve others, to glorify you, to show your love and your mercy and your truth to others, Lord God. We pray too, Lord, we come to you this day as those uh, poor in spirit, spiritual beggars. We come empty. We come to receive you, Lord Jesus. So we look forward to when you give yourself 
personally and relationally and humbly to us, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments, that you would, that we would receive all of you, trust you completely, offer ourselves to you in your service, and be transformed by your love for the sake of your world that you so love. All these things we lift up to you this day in the precious name of Jesus.